I still see all the people from Nashville, and it was the people that made the place. We had everyone come through there. One day Spike Lee, the next day John Mellencamp. You never knew who you were going to find. Harrison Ford, Susan Sarandon. Yoko Ono. I walked in one morning, and there was Paul McCartney. Real shady area, real shady block, you know, all the uh, porn houses. I had to cross over certain parts of 9th Avenue because I knew where the crack dens were. Hookers and stuff on 10th Avenue. You didn't walk west. In those rooms. There was a lot of trust. And boy, was that important. I just met this woman. We are sitting there in the edit room screening hardcore pornography. So what's said in the edit room stays in the edit room. Welcome to the Promo Cowboys podcast. In last week's edition, part one of my National Video Center tribute, you heard some of the voices from National's heyday as the Zeitgeist post-production facility in New York. This edition features those same voices, and more. If you haven't already listened to part one of this homage to National, I recommend that you go back and do that. Then pick up with this episode. And I'm planning to leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger at the end, so you'll stick around for part three. See, my National tribute is a trilogy. Consider this the Empire Strikes Back of Promo Cowboys Podcasts. So, let's begin with our old friend, Ron Harris, who started at National in 1974. When I first got to National, it was on 57th and 5th, across from what is now Trump Tower, when Ugly George was walking up and down 5th Avenue with his three-quarter-inch deck shooting video back in the day. National moved in 1981. Hal Lustig took a 25-year lease on the West Side Airlines Terminal at 42nd and 10th. He should have bought the building, but he didn't, which is what pretty much ended National Video June 7th, 2002. Plus, you know, that building was a former part of the Port Authority. It was a, uh, a bus depot which ran buses to the local airports. This is national editor Barry Gleiner, also from part one. And you could basically go there and get on a bus to LaGuardia, JFK, or Newark. Our stages were actually the indoor boarding areas for the buses. Oh, that's so wild. And they had the giant garage doors. So it was the perfect place to convert into a studio and a stage. Absolutely, yeah. And the upstairs, which were probably office spaces for... Port Authority people became, you know, our edit edit rooms, other office space and whatnot. I walked from Penn Station every morning from 34th and down 9th Avenue to 42nd and 10th. Ron Harris again. And for years, I had to cross over certain parts of 9th Avenue because I knew where the crack dens were. And it was too dangerous to walk that particular block. Prostitutes on 10th Avenue and the cartoons... And posters that they put up all over national video were two prostitutes saying, National moved in, there goes the neighborhood. I love that neighborhood. This is national editor Gary Vandenberg. I mean, it was um, was a little rough. Look, by the time I got there, um, you know, Theater Row was there. I remember the restaurant next door kept closing and reopening and reinvented. You know, there were some hookers and stuff on 10th Avenue, but not really that bad. You, you didn't walk west. So at least I didn't walk west of, um, of National. You know, I kind of stayed right there. And I drove in, so I used to park uh, across the street or in the Strand, s- six bucks. Look, I'd come out of the Times Square 
train exit, the R train I took from Astoria where I was living. Barry Gliner again. And I had to walk from, you know, 7th Avenue, 42nd Street across the 10th. Uh, a real shady area, a real shady block. Uh, then, you know, all the uh, porn houses, all the, all the theaters were, was all porno, all the shops. Look, I remember a lot of the, the women who worked there leaving after work. There was a lot of muggings and yeah. it, w- it was not good. And when I, when I was in the mailroom, uh, I, I used to have to be in like at 630 in the morning. It was like really ridiculously early. And there were times when I would literally have to step over some sleeping prostitutes in front of the building or drug addicts who were just, you know, passed out. And I would go, excuse me, I, I got to get into work. <laughs> and so I have to like literally push their legs out of the way with my foot. I mean, it was, it was crazy, but it didn't phase me at all. I was just like, you know, look, I got to get to work. You're in my way and whatever. <laughs> That's a New York attitude right there. Come along, boys, and listen to my tale. I'll tell you my troubles on the old Tism Trail. Come a kaya yippee ya yay yay Come a kaya yippee You know, Times Square and 42nd have been so disnified. Yeah, I mean, look, it's very tourist-driven. I recall thinking, you know, we've really kind of lost something here. It, it was disgusting and it was smarmy, but it was real. And what we have now is anything but real. Remember when all those theaters on on 42nd Street west of Times Square had the marquees all kind of lined up with these great sayings. Um, yeah, I do remember that. They were just using the uh, the marquees to put those uh, those messages up. Uh, but I think they were, most of them were bo- boarded up at the time. Those marquees were a public art project by Jenny Holzer. Before those old porn theaters were torn down to make room for tourist spots, Jenny Holzer took control of roughly two blocks of 42nd Street's old marquees. Instead of Debbie Does Dallas, people saw Jenny Holzer's truisms, like laugh hard at the absurdly evil, save her kindness because cruelty is always possible later. A lot of professionals are crackpots. Tell me about it. And everyone's work is equally important. The truisms of Jenny Holzer, which lined 42nd Street around 1993, find them all online. This is a good time to remind listeners that this Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the TV industry crime novel Promo Cowboy. Available at Amazon, Kindle, and your finer bookstores, Promo Cowboy makes a great holiday gift for clients, friends, and relations especially those who enjoy the fiction of Elmore Leonard and Cormac McCarthy. If you're sick and tired of explaining to people exactly what you do for a living, give them a copy of Promo Cowboy from the author of Life Askew. That is me, Barry Fitzsimmons. All right, now prepare yourself for a bout of shameless name-dropping by some of my guests. At my prodding, of course. On one day, I would be doing a Spike Lee 40 Acres and a Mule video. I didn't like him. He wouldn't shake my hand. And the next day, John Mellencamp would walk in and introduce himself like we didn't know who he was. And we would have a great time. One day, Spike Lee. The next day, John Mellencamp. And that's what National was about. We had everyone come through there. Harrison Ford, Susan Sarandon. This is Peter Fish, the founder of National Sound. We had, uh, why am I forgetting her name now? She's tall and willowy and was in the Alien movie. She's really tall. Daryl Hannah. No, black curly hair. Uh, oh, the Alien, Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. Thank you. Uh, I was on the other side, the Alien comedy side. So a lot of guys came in to do 
sound and audio work with you that likely never walked into an edit room. There was an old miller who lived by the mill. Every time the mill turned, turned to its will. A hand upon the hopper and the other on the cycle. Every time the mill turned, turned right by. This is my absolute favorite story. Walter Cronkite himself told me this story. We were doing a voiceover after he retired from CBS News with Walter Cronkite. And so he comes into the studio with Studio 2 at Nashville, and I was working with him. And I knew him well enough. And he walked in the door that day, and he went up to the reception desk in the front on the third floor. And she looked at him, and she goes, can I help you? And he said, yes, I'm doing a voiceover for CBS News. And she looked at him, and she said, and your name is? Oh. And he was about to say his name, because he's a gentleman. She goes, I know who you are. You're Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> Did you ever hear the history of Frank and Jesse James and the four younger boys? Walking in, walking into the main entrance at National to the reception desk, you never knew who you were going to find. I walked in one morning and there was Paul McCartney because Paul McCartney was going to be doing a satellite media tour or I would walk in and there was the Fonz, Henry Winkler, Yoko Ono. I think she lived on that couch on the third floor for years. Tootsie was shot there. And Dustin Hoffman walked around in full makeup without his wig on, just a stocking that pulled whatever hair he had back. And I would stand there in the men's room whizzing with the man and and where Woody Allen loved to do all his pickup shots at National out on the street uh, in the reception areas uh, in the uh, audio rooms I mean he was a regular at, at National I did Crazy Eddie get it all on sale now during Crazy Eddie. Oh, when Roberta and I got married in 72 we moved into Kew Gardens uh, not long after that uh, I went to Crazy Eddie on Avenue U to buy a pair of JBL 100 speakers. And they would tell us to get there at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, like on a Thursday night, because the truck would come in with the speakers. Well, we got there on a Thursday night, Roberto and I, and Eddie was really there. And I said, I'm here for the JBL 100s. And he looked at me and Roberta and he said, I tell you what, you let me have her, you can have these speakers for free. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. I was sitting with director Hal Gurney, the director for the David Letterman morning show on NBC. And he and I, with Letterman sitting in the editing room about 10 feet behind us, doing all the remote segments. Like they would go to Cresco, Iowa, or to a store in New York called Just Shades. Uh, I sat with Alan Funt <laughs> doing all the laugh tracks and editing for Candid Camera. We would have uh, quarter inch reels just rolling and I would fade up on the big laugh, on the little laugh, on the guffaw. But at the same time, I worked with Kiss, with Gene Simmons, the rabbi's son, sitting behind me, not in, in makeup or costume, in regular garb, which was, might have been even scarier. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, when, when did you work with KISS? I worked with KISS 
1979, 80. Really? Okay, so you, at the time, KISS is a, a, something of a cultural phenomenon and has been for a couple of years. Did you have a personal connection earlier? How did all that come together? I don't know how they got to me and National, but they booked sessions. <laughs> Was this when they took off their, their, their makeup? Well, no, they. I, I never knew that they took their makeup off as they played. All right, here's here's a great side note. I went to see Kiss <laughs> the first and only time I saw them the night that Elvis died. Oh my! So oh. I've been I've been waiting outside the Cow Palace in San Francisco right. for a number of hours before the show starts because that's how they they do these general admission shows back in those days. Oh yeah, you had to get there early if you yeah. wanted to get a decent seat. Anyway, so I haven't heard any news. And then we get in, and, and Kiss comes out, and they can do a couple songs. And then Paul Stanley's like, this next song is for Elvis. He died tonight. I'm not joking. I remember the very words he said. And then I think they played Love Gun. When Dr. Ruth would shoot her show in the big studio, the elevator door would open, and everybody would look to see who it was. But we never looked down low enough to see Dr. Ruth, who was about four foot four, getting off the elevator. One of my favorite jobs was I edited with Ray Davies of the Kinks, a very serious documentary film producer and I edited with Ray Davies for two and a half weeks in edit F doing I can't remember what group that he was doing well he well, for, it was for the kinks right well, no it wasn't it wasn't the kinks so he's producing Ray Davies of the kinks is producing a documentary about what uh, on another group I can't for reeking remember at the moment but I worked with him for two and a half weeks he sat with headphones he was a serious a, a, as a, a documentary filmmaker as I ever worked with and we it was intense and he was also going out with a lead singer of one of the top female groups at the time and she came in and sat on the back couch and ended up which was about seven feet behind yeah. us and watched us edit and he was amazing and when we were done with this two and a half week edit he invited me to a Kinks concert at the Academy of Music. And I went over there and I walked in and there was Ray Davies, this serious filmmaker, sitting on stage with a bottle of beer on his head. On his head. Okay, the lead singer of that female group Ron Harris is talking about it's Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders. This brings me to another point. The folks participating in this podcast and promo cowboys all over New York, Chicago, and L.A., myself included, often work with celebrities, singers, sports figures, and various household names, but not daily. This proximity to fame always makes for great cocktail party anecdotes, but we don't fool ourselves. We know we are largely servants to the rich and famous in our industry. Then there's Tina Potter's experience with a certain film icon who, well, best to let her tell it. 
when I was literally days away from delivering my son, I remember interviewing Bob Redford for, for a Sundance project. You call him Bob. Well, yeah, he wanted everybody to call him Bob. And he was so kind. He brought me water. That was really a fun day, um, although I was, you know, out to here. As I remember, you were the first client to work in the new online room at National on the fourth floor. Yes. Uh, we were doing CBS Sports. Now, across the street on the uh, north side of 42nd Street was Manhattan Plaza, which was uh, uh, apartment buildings built for people in the arts. And there in a window across the street was a big sign saying, I am the real Kramer from Seinfeld. Yes. He was the real Kramer. And he had a big, his whole window was that sign. Uh, just to let people know that he was the real guy. Well, he was standing in the window as well. That's the yes, thing. Yes, he was. Right, he was live. He okay. was he was just standing up there saying, everybody look at me. He's only on the second floor, right? I, I mean, I, I remember you're almost looking down on him. Yeah, second or third floor. By At this point, Seinfeld is, not only is it the most popular comedy on television, but people are so swept up in it that they can't stop talking about it. And that's in New York. I'm assuming elsewhere that maybe the scuttlebutt wasn't quite to that degree, but, uh, you know, it was such a great show, and he was trying to capitalize on that. But this was early, early during the Seinfeld run, and he was just getting wind of it. He was, like, starting to figure out. He's like, hey, there's some money to be made here. And he literally stood in his window next to the sign, and what do you remember him wearing? I think he was wearing a sleeveless T-shirt, you know, like a workout shirt, with his name all over it. It was crazy. It was fun. It was so weird. It was. It, it was the moment. Well, the okay. thing is, okay, I'm going to tell you this now. Mm-hmm. I worked in that room for the next two years for another client, and I was in that room probably three days a week, <laughs> and. We would literally, and you had these shades that had you push a button, the shades would open up onto 42nd Street, and there was Kenny Kramer. He would be sitting there with his sign, and he had just gotten his uh, the bus uh, tour that he started. The real New York from Kramer. The real Kramer shows in New York. But he would stand there on the phone generally, and he, it seemed as though his, his raison d'etre was to stand in the window and just draw people's attention and right. sometimes he was shirtless. Sometimes he wasn't wearing pants. I am not joking. I think I saw him naked a few times. Yo, Geraldo's moving to Channel 2. Do you remember the campaign you and I did with Frank Rattus, the rap song? I have a story to tell you about that campaign. I bet you don't know about it. Peter Fish again. We were doing uh, Geraldo's moving to Channel 2, and we had rewritten a song and put in a track down. And I had a bass player coming into play on it named Jerry Barnes. And Jerry was a, a, a very, very well-known bass player. And he introduced me to his kid sister, who was either 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, and her name was Catrice, Catrice Farms. Tagged along, and you met her, and he said she couldn't really sing. And she, I said, oh, let me hear you. And she ended up singing the jingle. And I believe she was also on camera. She was. Big smile, big voice. Now, Catrice Farms has gone on to an enormous career. 
She was the musical director of the Oprah show. She was the musical director of Saturday Night Live. Wow. But probably from 96, 97 through 2009. She's an internationally recognized musical director, recording artist, piano player, and her first professional gig ever was Geraldo's going to Channel 2. Anyone who's listening to this, look her up. Patrice Barnes, because you and I, Barry, started her career. That is awesome. And I remember quite distinctly her, you know, she does the solo there. That's got to be her. I remember the night we recorded that. We're friends to this day. And uh, that was the absolute beginning of an enormous career. And for the record, the track that you guys rewrote was originally composed by yours truly. All the cool kids, the sort of the Dürger style in New York back in the early 90s was to wear a lot of black. Like the cooler you were, the more black you wore. And the VH1 and the MTV kids all wore black. You know, I wore my share of black, but you, on the other hand, in those days anyway. I can't believe you're going to say this. Go ahead. You would wear a, a business suit. I was wearing a tie and a shirt every day, okay? And you were wearing the suit a banker might wear. To this day, I'm sitting here in an Izod shirt. To this day, I cannot believe I wore that when I was editing. And Jerry McKenna, the late Jerry, he would say to me, the only reason you wear that is because you want your neighbors on the Port Washington train to think you have a real job, okay? And maybe he was right. Discover more from the Promo Cowboys archive. Listen to all of season one at iTunes, including my discussion with former Promo Cowboy Jonathan Bloom, who's become a technology investment guru and is better known now as the digital skeptic. Your statement needs a breakdown for our sake. The information economy, including the internet, big data, and social media, is the single greatest value destruction engine in human history. What are you trying to tell us? It is. The, the North American economy, our economy, should be at least twice as big as it is now and maybe three times as big. And you, when you start calculating what we've lost in digitizing the world, you get into such staggering numbers. Is that because intellectual property is no longer monetized? The first real casualty was the music industry right around the turn of the millennium. And then it moved through every other form of, of digital information. And, and once it becomes digitized, it becomes worth a lot less. You know, the music industry used to be 20 billion in North America. Now it's down at six, inflation adjusted, continues to get smaller. And, and it, it is the greatest value destruction engine ever. Well, count on Jonathan Bloom for opinions you may not like, but maybe you need to hear them anyway. Okay, here's Barry Gleiner again on a topic near and dear to Promo Cowboy, that being the peculiar relationship between the editor and the producer. Some of my clients, I'd sit there at the end of the uh, session, and we had these uh, paperwork uh, that they had assigned to... Um, approve the hours that we work, the equipment we might have used, so you know that the billing went through accordingly. And sometimes I would write on the bottom, hand write in, you know, psychological services uh, provided by Barry Gleiner, and I would add an extra $250 fee, and then they would all, you know, ha-ha, and they would sign their name to that too. Oh, that's awesome. 
I'll tell you, the, the trust that went in that room between editors and producers, especially those that you work with consistently on, on projects, you know, month after month, year after year, for multiple years, you really, they got to know the editor and we got to know the producers more than maybe their spouses or siblings or own parents knew each other. I mean, the amount of stories that I would hear about girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives, kids, parents, marriages, divorces, births. <laughs> I mean, you can't imagine. Well, you probably could imagine. Oh, I was involved in many of those conversations. And I think that continues it, it, no matter it, what to this day. Because if you're sitting in a room with one other person for eight, ten hours a day and say you work together for a week or so or say you're lockstep for two years. I mean, I've been through that with editors. And you get to know each other in ways that you literally – it's like a foxhole. There was a lot of trust. And boy, was that important. And not only professional trust but that personal trust too because when you – Talk about these things. Look, you, you don't want to walk out and say, hey, you know what so-and-so told me? You know, yeah. I never, never did that. So what's said in the edit room stays in the edit room. Exactly. It was definitely the edit room mantra. And the trust that you built uh, personally with these producers you know, became such a, a foundation of the professional trust where sometimes producers would call in a session and not come and let you as the editor – put together the spot, and this is before the days of digital video where you can make a quick time movie and send it out. We would make a VHS and send it by a messenger over to wherever that producer, whether it was their home, or office, whatever yeah. they work with, and then they would review the spot, call me up and go, I like it, just change this and change that, don't even send me another VHS, just ship it after broadcast. The same is true with me in almost... Every producer who walked through the door. Gary Vandenberg again. I was doing um, Phil Donahue promos for a long time. And I remember this this woman came in with, you know, an armful of three-quarter inch tapes. <clears throat> and we're doing a promo for Donahue. And the subject is pornography. So I just met this woman. And we are sitting there in the edit room screening hardcore pornography, looking for shots we can use. I'm sitting there with... Uh, total stranger yeah. who was also a woman when we first met the first thing we did was watch porn together so i mean you you have experiences like that and it's like you sometimes look at the producer and you say i don't even know you <laughs> we're cool right yeah we're cool here. <laughs> so you have those moments and you do i think with a lot of people you um develop an almost an instant bond mm -hmm. if you know, it ba it's more back in those days than now. Okay, I want to close with a few words of wisdom from Tina Potter, who we really haven't heard much from in this edition. Listen and learn how to succeed in business from a TV promoter and marketer with chops that date back to MTV's breakout. I wanted to launch my own company. I love Lee Hunt, but I was giving him so much money <laughs> that I thought, wait, I could be doing this. I had breakfast with Lee Hunt and Linda Ong, and I said, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you guys think? And they, Lee gave me his blessing. Oh. And, um, and yeah, that no, was great. And um, so I went out and started Teapot, and, um, and I 
spoke to uh, Broadway and I spoke to Beetlejuice and because I had such close relationship with everybody at national and because I think they had the most resources of anybody in New York, they had the stages, Telezine was there, West end editorial had just started getting into digital when it was brand new. I decided to launch my company out of national. And so I launched teapot out of a little office at national and you know, it was a great experience. They were great business partners. I worked really closely with Telezine and grew my business very quickly. Outside, you know, I, I kept a retainer from AMC and Bravo at the time, but then also like signed a contract with Nickelodeon and did a ton of work with Lifetime and HGTV, you know, lots of sizzle reels and promo campaigns and tons of work at Rainbow it, for all, all different divisions and did that for five years. There goes that train Red, blue light behind This is something I'm kind of curious about. It's a sensitive topic for some of us. In terms of linear television and cable launches and stuff, which you've been through multiple ones and so have I, do you think we're going to see any more independent cable launches on the linear platform? No, absolutely not. And I think you're going to see more go under now. Well, a few, yeah, we've already lost a few this year. Well, yeah, Pivot, you know, is on its way. I think things like Tennis Channel and Ovation and, you know, these companies that aren't attached to larger media companies, uh, these independent channels, there's no way to support them. Maybe they can support themselves as streaming video platforms. But, you know, the business model is entirely different. And I think you're going to see a thinning of the herd, if anything. Nothing like some core industry nuts and bolts logic to gear promo cowboys up for their next big career move makes you wonder what part three of this national tribute is going to sound like, doesn't it? Try this. Though it ended on a low note, I could never erase that part of my life as being the best part of my professional life and a good portion of my personal life. It was a really long time ago, but it was a time in my life I'll certainly never forget. I had such a wonderful career as an editor for 26 years. I do feel the same, but I have moved on. And I left National before it closed, so I wasn't there when they put the locks on. I look back and... The times that we're talking about, with the same view that you do, that there was so much to be gained from that environment, and yet at the same time, it's gone. It's just gone. You know, Hal Lustig built it up to be this just, you know, premier production, post-production facility, and uh, now it's a theater, isn't it? The final days at National Video Center in the next edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Barry Fitzsimmons. As always, this edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Available in hard copy at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores. And find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store. I want to thank my guests today, Ron Harris, Barry Gleiner, Peter Fish, Gary Vandenberg, and Tina Potter. Also, thanks to freesound.org for the instrumental music on this podcast and the Pond5 Public Domain Project for all the archival interludes. I'm reminded that I should ask you to please rate this podcast in iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. 
please. And don't forget to check out my new Promo Cowboys Facebook page. I hope you like that as well. Reach me, as always, on Twitter, at Promo Cowboy. Also on Facebook and LinkedIn, at Barry Fitzsimmons. Promo Cowboys is a Steve production. Steve is a division of Igloo Media, LLC. This podcast was edited and produced by Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks again for joining me. As Promo Cowboy says, Shoot, thought he's gonna leave us with a cliffhanger. All right, take us out.